Hello, I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley. And I'm her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Heidi and I want to welcome you to Open to Hope Conversations, the podcast. We believe that the greatest gift you can give yourself after a loss is hope, using this moment to connect with others who have not only survived, but thrived. So let's get started. Welcome to the Open to Hope show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my daughter and co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Heidi, we've got another wonderful show today. Uh, we are going to be talking about how grief draws us to service and how some of early losses can impact our life, as I know they have had many people because we found that service is an extremely important part of dealing with the grieving process and moving through life in a joyous way. So Heidi, you want to introduce our guest today? Sure, I'd love to. So our guest today is Dr. Christopher Kerr, and he is the author of a groundbreaking book called Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End. Um, Christopher is no stranger to grief because his father died of cancer when he was only 12 years old. Today, he is the chief medical officer and chief executive officer of the Center for Hospice and Palliative Care in Buffalo, New York. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. Hi, Chris. Great to have you on the show. You know, I uh, watch your YouTube, take a look at your book, and um, I was intrigued with the fact that your dad was a doctor, and you became a doctor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually, I'm the fifth in a row. Wow. Oh, the fifth in a row. Okay, very good. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your dad's death. He died of cancer, is that right? That's right. So it was a process. He has a process under a year from the time of diagnosis to death. It's been brutal seeing your dad die. Yes, it certainly was. Don't have, I don't have much memory. I think a lot of uh, children who see a parent die at that sort of age, there's a lot of blank spots. I'm actually teaching a class that I designed called Traumatic Loss During Childhood. And I'm looking at how our early losses and our early traumas impact us throughout the life course. In, in not just negative ways, you know that there's a lot of post-traumatic growth that comes from um, trauma, and, and you are certainly an example of that. Mm -hmm. I think it is really incredible and important for everybody out there to know that your father has had a profound impact on the career trajectory you took, even though he isn't here. It was interesting. It was in writing the book that I, I realized the connectivity. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes you're even, you know, you, you don't recognize your own the own obviousness of your own life. But yep. um, I was actually very uh, death avoidant, I think, from um, my experiences as a child. Mm -hmm. uh, and as I say in the book, if you're avoidant of death, medical school is a pretty safe place to be. Um, <laughs> you don't actually have to deal with it. People die, but you're, you're actually not the caretaker to the dying. Right. You're in the business uh, of keeping people alive when you... Yeah, and almost right? death is more or less denied. Mm -hmm. And um, and what happened was I was uh, needed a part time job. I was a cardiology fellow here in town, and uh, there was an ad for a hospice doctor. So I ended up doing that on the side, and um, and when I started working with dying patients, I saw what I saw when my father uh, was passing, um, which is that you know he was having these very intense dream experiences. Um, subjective events in, in dying and so it kind of went all full circle for me but I really didn't put it together till I was writing the book I didn't mention my father's death and I just realized how intellectually dishonest it was because there had to be some kind of connectivity between what I was talking about and what I had an experience as a child 
it was so painful at the time. It was not something I was really comfortable talking with. So I sat down with a friend and I said, um, you know, I just want to run something by it. Just, this feels really odd. Here I am talking about this. I saw this as a boy and I, I, I'm not talking about it in that context. So that's how that came about. One of the things I really like about your story is that it's never too late to go back in life and kind of look at those early losses and how it's impacted us and, and pay tribute to them and honor them and grieve them. Yeah, very much. Talk to us a little bit about your research in your book. When I got to hospice, I was struck by how common it was for patients to have uh, intense dreams, typically of loved ones who return. They're often very uh, profoundly meaningful and give a lot of comfort. And everybody seemed to, who, who worked with the dying, seemed to recognize that this was a thing and it even had prognostic meaning. So in other words, the frequency and intensity of these hasten uh, forthcoming death. Um, when I started looking at literature, there was a great deal in the humanities about this, but nothing in the medical literature. So the medical literature doesn't talk a lot about dying, particularly the experiences of dying. So I started to look at dying um, in terms of what it was, what, what was the subjective experience of actually going through this process. We did is we started to do a real evidence-based approach where we asked people every day up until death, what were these experiences leading up to uh, the end? And many people we videoed. Uh, and then what we found was that there was a dramatic increase in frequency and that these were described as more real than real on a skin of, scale of one to 10, they were 10 out of 10, usually in a dream state. The, the, and, and the thing we most commonly heard is I don't normally dream or these were different, these, these were virtual or, or, or real. Um, they were actual, actual experiential uh, to, to the folks who were describing them. Um, and again, overwhelmingly comfortable, comforting and often of past meaningful events that they had. And it, it was, it, they ended up providing this enormous sense of reassurance. Um, and that was overwhelmed. The majority of patients were having these experiences right up until the end. And all these people were fully lucid. They had to pass through all the requirements to participate in a study. What about your work in bereavement with the people, family members where someone has died? How does this all work? Well, there was always just this assumption that the adage is true. What's good for the patient is good for the family. And the book is a couple who had been together for six decades. They lost a child at stillbirth. And um, the husband's looking down on his life's partner and she's cradling the baby and referring to him by name. And what that does is a number of things, but it recontextualizes loss uh, and really more in, uh, to affirm life. And it also creates this connectivity um, between and across lives that what's been loved and cherished isn't really gone. And it just... Um, it gives grief uh, uh, an, another dimension, I think. You know, we've done things like uh, bereavement inventories. We've done surveys now, I think, of over 700 people. Wow. And, uh, predominantly, people who witness these events um, show uh, positive uh, benefits in terms of grief processing. So what about the family after death? Do you work with them? I, I think generally in, in medical care, I think they need inclusion in the process. Uh, I think they need open and honest uh, communication, a better sense of what to expect in the dying process, because usually it's a void of, of a, a lack of information and it's filled with fear. So I think there's an abundance of opportunity to, to include the family uh, in the dying process um, so that they're assured and comforted and addressed. Um, we see that all the time. Um, 
in, in our work. We don't communicate this stuff well. We over-prognosticate by a factor of two to three. If you were to try to understand when someone's going to die, in reality, you're better off just rolling dice. Mm -hmm. um, so there's an, a, a terrible absence of, of accurate information. Mm -hmm. And so people, my point in all this is a lot of deaths seem that they're acute, that something happened, something went wrong, uh, or it was, there was a suddenness to it when it, it's not true at all. Right. I think people need to know that there, it is not true that there's okay. a suddenness to death. If, no. You know, unless it's a sudden death. No, the, 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 the most acute yeah. thing about dying is the awareness that somebody needs to tell somebody that they're dying, but it's usually forecastable. So it's not uncommon for us to see spouses come in six months, a year, two years later with enormous guilt, mm -hmm. wondering if they had made the wrong decision. And you're right, they'll say it on the hospice side, you know, if I hadn't brought him into hospice, you know, would he still be here? Mm -hmm. um, and it's just tragically not true. Um, I don't find that they're unreasonable people, they've been treated unreasonably. If they were brought along more, more accurately with information, more realistically, but we're so uncomfortable um, telling people truths around these issues that it comes as a shock. And that's tra death traumatizing. The shock of being told suddenly is even more so. So we don't do this well. People tend to die constitutionally. You know, they, 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 they dwindle and they fade. They eat less, they do less, they weigh less. Um, you know, it's accelerated old age, but we tend not to see it because we view going to the hospital as an intervention that's going to fix something. People get to the right conclusion and they're less injured if they can understand it. And if, they can, if you give them the, the, the data points to put this together, they're not unreasonable. They tend to make death acute and shocking. I'm watching the show or I'm listening to it. Could I go back to the chart? Could I go to my hospice or could I go to the hospital and get into the chart? And if oh, so... Yeah. And Absolutely. how would I do it? Whoever is the proxy can sign for release. And I think it's a really, really important thing. It's, it's, you know, it's the most important postmortem I think we do is sit down with a family and try to put down a puzzle. Oftentimes it's really interesting. They'll have been in a hospital and sleepless for six weeks before death. They, they, they can hardly put one end together. They need time to recalibrate and to calmly sit down and to have somebody walk through the events of the hospitalization, mm -hmm. to retrace the steps, to give it understanding. It's a very, very important people and thing, and not enough people do it. Well, I, I don't think, honestly, that we feel empowered to do it. Well, it's, it's actually interesting how we came upon this. I started doing it probably 18 years ago. Is um, we, Hospice includes 13 months of bereavement. Mm -hmm. Right. We have a, a group of wonderful bereavement counselors. And um, one day I'm hearing uh, one of the bereavement therapists talk, says, you know, this poor widow is just stuck. She cannot get over her guilt over what happened in the hospital. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And we just started to look and I looked at the trigger. There's, I said, she didn't do anything. He, 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 every, he had multiple organ failure. There's nothing could have saved this gentleman. So we brought her in and more and more we've done it over time. And it's a very, very, very helpful thing. Uh, closure is important in the grief process. And the reality is the medical piece of this is, is a big part of, of the closing process. Mm -hmm. And I would think that after the death, people would be more opened to really looking at the reality of, of how somebody deteriorated over time. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Because I, I think you know, they, they have a different vantage point.
-hmm. So you're not in the moment, but you can step back and go, boy, okay. Uh, uh, the classic example, and you've had elderly grandparents who have probably did it. If you reflect back on how they died, unless they had a heart attack or a sudden stroke, they dwindled. Mm -hmm. so right. Yeah. They stopped going upstairs. They stopped doing their own yeah. shopping. They stopped going to the mailbox. Mm -hmm. They spent more time napping in the chair. Their meals became yeah. uh, lighter. Uh, and, and that's, it's, it's a global decline um, that happens over time. But when you medicalize dying and you look at it in terms of illness exacerbation, you look at acute events, but that's mm -hmm. actually not it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the pneumonia uh, might seem like it killed the 90-year-old, but it wouldn't have killed the 20-year-old because right. there's a 70-year-old, 70-year-old age older body, yeah. frail and debilitated. And then, of course, the other thing to do is to align that with really what the patient wanted. What was quality of life for them at that point? What seemed reasonable? What do you think they would have wanted? And what you find is the vast, vast majority of, of elder and frail and complicated ill people actually don't want to live under, uh, under unreasonable situations. Mm -hmm. right. So it's not like even if you could have revived that person, that 92-year-old in the hospital, the, the next problem was around the corner. Right, right. And right. between that episode and the next one, they were going to be bed-bound, head of Foley, dependent on care. And I got to tell you, I don't meet many people who, who want to live under those terms. Yeah. Signs a closing of a life. It's not just a, a medical phenomena. And um, life includes the people they love and the events they've shared. And uh, that all comes to surface at this time. Yeah. And tell us where people will find your videos. Oh, uh, so the, probably the best thing to do is start with my TED Talk. If you type TED Talk and okay. Chris that's you can see, uh, you can see the, the talk there. Okay. And, and you have a website? I do. It's a uh, it's Christopher Kerr author. It's the author page, and that'll show up on a search. Okay, and that's the author for your new book. Give us the name. And it's Death Is But a Dream. Thank you for being on the show today, and Great. good luck in everything that you're doing. Appreciate it very much. And we want to thank everybody for watching this show and listening to it. And we want to remind you, Heidi and I, and I'm sure Christopher, want to remind you that if you've lost hope, please lean on ours until you find your own. And God bless. I'm Dr. Heidi Horsley. You have been listening to Open to Hope, the podcast. You can follow Open to Hope on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To learn more, visit us at opentohope.com and go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe. I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley. Join us again next week for another Open to Hope conversation, where we invite you to lean on our hope until you find your own.